You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Library's Writers Live series. I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of this department, and it's my pleasure to have you here this evening and to introduce our guest speaker, author Kenneth C. Davis, who is who is an historian and best-selling author of America's Hidden History and Don't Know Much About series of books for adults and children. A frequent guest on national television and radio and a TED-ED educator, Davis enjoys both in-person and virtual visits with middle and high school classrooms to discuss history. Davis makes frequent media appearances, including NPR's All Things Considered, and he has lectured at numerous museums, including the Smithsonian Museum and the American Museum of Natural History. He has been a contributor to the New York Times Newsday and other publications. Born in Mount Vernon, New York City, he currently lives in New York City in Dorset, Vermont, with his wife and two children. Please give a warm welcome to Kenneth Davis as he discusses his latest work, In the Shadow of Liberty, The Hidden History of Slavery, Four Presidents, and Five Black Lives. Good evening, and thank you for coming out on this very wet night. I, I appreciate it. I know uh, when you, s- you get up there and you say, gee, it's looking kind of wet out there. Um, I'm not sure about this, but I appreciate it. It is always a great pleasure for me to come to the Enoch Pratt Library and to Baltimore. Uh, although I am not a Baltimorean myself, I am the son of one, and so I always have had a wonderful connection uh, that I feel, at least, uh, to this city and also its extraordinary history. And I know um, my father, who was born here and grew up here, um, and some of his family members as well, would have been extraordinarily proud to walk past the Enoch Pratt Library and see my picture in the front window, because <laughs> uh, it's a thrill for me. I'm sure it would have been a, a thrill for him. Um, This is my second time speaking here. I was here a few years ago to talk about an earlier book called The Hidden History of America at War. Uh, And that book, uh, like this new book, um, is about stories. I believe that we have to tell history by telling stories. I started out about 30 years ago. It's hard for me to even believe that I'm saying that. uh, With a book called Don't Know Much About History. And Don't Know Much About History took a very simple approach to American history. I asked questions and tried to answer them in a few short pages or paragraphs. Um, But it's the kind of questions that I think many people have. Uh, Very simple things like, who really discovered America? Uh, What does the Declaration of Independence declare? But occasionally a little bit more offbeat and quirky, like why is there a statue of Benedict Arnold's boot? Uh, And there is one. Uh, If anybody's curious, I'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, One of the questions that I always was perplexed by and set out to answer in that book, 
and I've been trying to answer ever since, is this very fundamental question of how these men who built this country, the men we call founders, how they could fight and struggle and sacrifice for the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, yet still go back to plantations completely dependent upon enslaved labor. To me, that was always the great contradiction in our history. It was the idea that a nation conceived in liberty, as Abraham Lincoln said, was also born in shackles. I've tried to answer that question over the years with the idea of what these men said and did and wrote about this question. And now I've tried to come around to a different perspective in this new book to look at what people who were enslaved thought about their lives, especially their lives in connection to some of the most famous men in our history. To start tonight with this quote, though, a great nation does not hide its history. It's one of the few things that George W. Bush has said that I find myself in complete agreement with. (laughs) But of course, in fact, we've spent a great deal of time hiding our history, especially our history when it comes to this issue of African slavery. And for a long time, as I said, I've been trying to answer that question, how did these men like Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton and Madison and Andrew Jackson live and fight and struggle for these ideals that they held very dear for rights, their rights, yet still be masters of the enslaved? For a long time, as I said, I tried to answer that in terms of the documents they wrote. We the people, the, the, uh, the U.S. Constitution, of course. Or another very important document that was actually ratified on this date. It's a fairly significant date in our history. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, ratified on December 6th, 1865. Uh, I've always thought we should have a holiday in this country to celebrate emancipation, and we don't. And maybe December 6th would be a good one, Um, just something to think about. But again, these are documents. What I'm really more interested in writing and talking about are the stories of the people. And this new book is the story of five people who were the property, the legal, technical property of four of our most famous, admired, even beloved American heroes, and I want to talk to you tonight about their stories. So we begin with teeth. George Washington had wooden teeth, right? No, he did not. He didn't have wooden teeth. He had false teeth. He had a lot of dentures. This is the last known set of full set of dentures that Washington owned. Uh, they're on display still to this day at Mount Vernon. If you uh, are down there at the plantation, you can see them are under glass. But as you can see, they're not wooden. They look uh, pretty awful. Uh, but uh, most of his false teeth were made of animal tusk, bone, uh, set in lead. No wonder he looked uncomfortable in all those portraits. Lead dentures. But he also used human teeth in his dentures. Uh, And in one case, we know that he bought teeth 
from the enslaved people at Mount Vernon. We have records that he paid for nine teeth from people who were willing to sell their teeth to their master. I suppose if George Washington asked you for your teeth and he offered to pay for for them, um, it was hard to say no. But that is the human side of this story. And that gets how, to how close the lives of the master and the enslaved were, that he had their teeth. Whether he actually put them in his mouth or not, we don't know, but that was certainly the purpose. There he is, George Washington, and his lovely wife, Martha. We know those two children are Nellie and Cust Washington, Cuss Washington, um, the grandchildren that they raised as their own children. But who's that fellow in the corner? Who is he? Maybe he's Christopher Shields, who was a servant in the, White, in the Mount Vernon plantation. Maybe he's a fellow named Paris or Giles. Or maybe he's Billy Lee. But we just don't know. Even though we know everything about those other four people in that painting, we don't even know the man, name of the man in this famous painting, which is in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., because these people were in the shadow of history, in the shadow of liberty. We know these faces, Washington, Jefferson, Madison. But who's holding George Washington's horse there in the background here? Washington holds the Declaration of Independence, and a fellow named William Lee holds his horse. That's William in the background. And he's depicted with that kind of unusual turban. And we know that William Lee didn't really wear a turban most of the time, but this is how artists of that period depicted African Americans, especially enslaved African Americans, as somewhat exotic, foreign, a little bit unusual. So they gave them this artistic flourish of wearing this exotic, foreign-looking turban. So that's William Lee holding George Washington's horse. Who is William Lee? Well, William Lee was purchased by George Washington at auction, at an estate sale. George Washington was riding around the Virginia countryside one day, stopped off at a neighbor's estate sale. He was selling his property off. He had died. His family was selling his property to pay off his debts. Now, when you and I drive around or walk around and we see an estate sale and we stop in, you might find some books or some china or some silver or an old painting, piece of art that you might buy, maybe a rug or something. But when George Washington went to an estate sale, he bought people. On this day, he bought four young boys. This is recorded in his diary. He paid for them. He didn't actually have to pay on the spot. He didn't have of course, there were no credit cards, no, no ATM. So he wrote a note promising to pay 18 months later, and Washington's word was good enough. So he bought these four young boys. Two of them were Negro boys, in, in Washington's wo- words, and two were mulatto, meaning they were probably of mixed race and probably had lighter skin. Their names were Frank and William Lee, and they were destined to work in Washington's main house at Mount Vernon because... In the fashion of the day, it was customary for the house servants to be lighter-skinned, to look more white. I know it's offensive and horrifying to even think about it, but that was the fashion of the day. 
Billy Lee, from the time he was about 14 or 15 years old, we don't actually know how old he was because William Lee, like most enslaved people, didn't know his birthday. Frederick Douglass writes in his famous autobiography, his famous narrative, I'd never met a slave who knew his birthday. This basic fact of our humanity, very, very few slaves enslaved people knew their birthday. But there's William Lee. This is 1775, a famous painting by Trumbull, who was a soldier in Washington's uh, army. This is in New York. Uh, the uh, background is supposedly West Point. But there again is Billy in the background, holding the horse, again with that curious turban on, making him look kind of foreign and exotic. He was there with Washington every day of the American Revolution. I don't believe he wore a turban during every day of the American Revolution. He was there uh, at Valley Forge. He was there when Washington crosses the Delaware. This is another less famous. You've all seen the picture in the boat. Uh, this is a less famous uh, depiction of the crossing of the Delaware. But again, this is Billy Lee. Got that long white coat on, and again, an orange hat, whether it's a turban or not, still very distinctive. But he's again in the shadows of the picture. Billy Lee is in, an, in this uh, uh, painting, the famous scene of the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown, October 1781. But Billy Lee was certainly there, probably somewhere in the distance, holding George Washington's horse. Also, not in this picture are the hundreds of African-American soldiers who were in Washington's army and certainly contributed to the victory not only during the war but at, at Yorktown in October 1781. This is the crowning achievement. By the way, Washington is not the man on the white horse. That's Benjamin Lincoln. Washington is sitting more in the background uh, on his favorite chestnut named Nelson. Also not in this picture is something else they probably didn't tell you in your school books about Yorktown when Washington won that victory and wrote the document with all the terms of the surrender, he demanded the return of all the property held by the British garrison. Now, what do you think he meant? Of course, he meant only one thing, enslaved people. There were perhaps five or 6,000 runaways, escaped African-American enslaved people with the British in Yorktown while Washington and the French were bombarding it. They were all recaptured and returned to slavery. At the moment of Washington's greatest triumph, when he wins America's freedom, thousands of people lose their chance for their freedom. They included 17 people from Mount Vernon, people who had run away from Mount Vernon early in 1781 and were with the British in Yorktown. They included about two dozen people from Jefferson's plantations, one of them said that they were taken back by General Washington and Master Jefferson was mighty happy to see his people. Billy Lee is also with George Washington when he goes to Philadelphia to write the Constitution. Washington presides over the convention. Of course, we don't know what Billy Lee thought about what these men were saying and doing as they tried to craft the compromises to create a more perfect union. But we do know that Washington bought Billy a new suit and a black silk handkerchief, probably so that he'd look very presentable as Washington made his way around Philadelphia, which was then the biggest and most cosmopolitan city in America. After 
<clears throat> that Billy goes back to Mount Vernon and spends the rest of his uh, life there. Also born at Mount Vernon is a young woman named Ona Judge. And she's the second person I, whose story I tell in this book. Um, Ona Judge is not depicted in this uh, lithograph from the mid-19th century, but I included it to present a picture of what people at that time thought life on Washington's plantation looked like. There's Washington speaking to the overseer, some of the enslaved people having a drink of water. They look pretty happy, and someone's hair is being done. It's all pretty, I don't know, peaceful, idyllic looking. Of course, not a very good representation of what life among the enslaved was like. But on at Mount Vernon, a young woman named Ona Judge is born. Her mother was a seamstress, enslaved. Her father was an indentured servant from Leeds, England, named Edward Judge. We don't know a great deal about him, except he did eventually, under the terms of his contract, indentured contract, was eventually uh, uh, free to go about his way, started up a small farm. Uh, his footnote to history is that he was the man, as a, as a tailor, who sewed George Washington's uniform in 1775 when Washington went off to take over the Continental Army. But he was the father of an enslaved woman because Ona Judge's mother was enslaved under the rules of Virginia and most of the rest of the country at the time. If one's mother was enslaved, the child was enslaved. Ona grows up and becomes Martha Washington's lady maid, her, waiting, uh, her servant in waiting. She's with her first thing in the morning. She's with her at the end of the night. As president, Washington lived in Philadelphia from 1790 to 1797, and Ona Judge goes with the Washingtons to serve them in the nation's capital. Then, again, the most uh, uh, cosmopolitan, populous uh, city in America at the time, and a city where there was a large, free people of population, of free people of color. So Ona Judge and the other eight enslaved people from Mount Vernon who were working for the Washingtons knew that there were people like them who were out and free. They also knew that Philadelphia had a law, Pennsylvania had a law from 1780, that if an enslaved person was in the state for more than six months, that is an enslaved male over the age of 28, he would be freed. George Washington knew about that law. He told his secretary and Mrs. Washington that they would move the servants back and forth between Philadelphia and Mount Vernon to avoid that law, even though that was against the letter and spirit of the law. Washington told his secretary that only Mrs. Washington and he needed to know about this. So the little boy who could not tell a lie was not so truthful when it came to the fact of his enslaved people in Philadelphia. Washington was worried that they would get word of this and start to feel the itch to get free themselves. And only judge, one night, May 1796, walks out. She disappears from the house of the most powerful man in America. A few days later, Washington takes out an advertisement in a Philadelphia newspaper. Absconded from the household of the president, $10 will be paid. $10 in 1796 was a pretty big piece of change today, uh, so it it's, doesn't seem like much, but it was a great deal of money. 
Why was Washington so eager to get her back? Well, first of all, Mrs. Washington really liked Oni and how she took care of her and said she was such a talented seamstress. So that was one reason. She couldn't understand, in fact, why someone who had been treated like a child, in her words, would do such a thing. But Washington had another motive. Oni Judge was what was known as a dower slave. She was not the personal property of George Washington. She actually belonged to Martha Washington's first husband, who had died. She inherited those enslaved people during her lifetime. After her death, they would be returned to the Custis estate. That means if Oni Judge got away, George Washington would have been on the hook for her cost. And that would have been an expensive piece of property to have to replace. So he spent the next three years trying to hunt down Oni Judge. In one of the extraordinary coincidences or accidents of history, she makes her way to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She's walking around the streets there. It was a fairly small town at the time, and there weren't many African Americans in Portsmouth. But someone recognizes her. It's the daughter of one of the senators from New Hampshire is walking down the street and knows her because she's visited the Washingtons in Philadelphia and says, Oni, what are you doing here? There are different versions of what Oni tells her, but one says, Mrs., I just wanted to be free. That young woman then reports this to news to her father, who reports it back to Washington. Washington then sends the collector of ports, a federal official, to track down and convince Ona Judge to come back. I won't tell you the end of the story. That would spoil it. Washington continued to hunt Oni until his death in, uh, at the turn of the century. And this, of course, is his uh, beautiful marble tomb at the Mount Vernon Plantation, uh, a real site of pilgrimage for many people. Very nearby is the African-American memorial at Mount Vernon. And what you may not be able to see in this photograph There's a, there's a picket fence in the back of that. That picket fence surrounds what is called the slave burial ground. It is where the African-American enslaved people of Mount Vernon were buried, and that's too kind a word, I suppose, disposed of when they died. Washington's beautiful tomb, marble, headstones, we know all that. There are no markers. There are no names. There's nothing to indicate who's buried in that burial ground. Chances are that William Lee is buried in there, but we don't know for sure. He was the most famous African-American man of the 18th and early 19th century. We don't know when he died, and we don't know where he's buried. Again, these are people in the shadows of history, in the shadows of liberty. You know this face. No shadows there. Thomas Jefferson, master of Monticello. And there it is, his beautiful home that he spent so much time fixing and tearing down and rebuilding. Practically went broke doing that and was seriously in debt at the end of his life because he was spending so much money fixing Monticello. Right below Monticello, the main house there, is a strip called Mulberry Row, Row, where the enslaved people had their quarters. Monticello has just reconstructed some of those cabins of the enslaved people, and this one is actually called Hemming's Cabin. It's typical of what would have been the cabins 
near the main house of, of uh, Monticello. Um, dirt floor, single window, a chimney, one room, of course, um, very far removed from the grandeur of Monticello, but really right outside the windows. You didn't have to go very far from the beauty of Monticello to see this on Mulberry Row. This man, Isaac Granger, was his birth name. He took the name Jefferson later in his life, was born in one of those cabins at Monticello. Isaac Granger's story is also in this book. I start with his story, uh, be, uh, his, I start out his story when he's five years old because when he was five years old in 1781, he was in Richmond, Virginia, when the British come trying to arrest Thomas Jefferson, led by none other than Benedict Arnold. That's why history is so much more interesting than any novel could ever be. Think of it. Benedict Arnold comes to Richmond, Virginia with handcuffs to arrest Thomas Jefferson, the governor of Virginia. He misses him by minutes. Jefferson actually watches the British come into Richmond from the hills through a telescope. And then Isaac, who's only five years old, reports that the British take them away. Isaac is in Yorktown. He is among those African-American, enslaved African-Americans with the British in Yorktown while it's being bombarded. And he is the young man who later grows up and says, General Washington took us back to Richmond and Master Jefferson was mighty happy to see his people. What's extraordinary about this is we have, this is a daguerreotype, an early form of photograph. We have a photograph of an enslaved man who was the property of Thomas Jefferson. Think about that. That's how close we are to this story. This is not ancient history. This is fresh. This is recent in our times. We have a picture of a man who was a servant to Thomas Jefferson. This is, of course, Jefferson's tombstone. He uh, wrote his own epitaph. He says he was the author of the Declaration of Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, which is the precursor to the First Amendment to the Constitution, and father of the University of Virginia. Those were his three chief accomplishments, Jefferson thought. What does he leave out, of course? Being president was uh, not his, as far as he was concerned, the most important thing he had done. Once again, we have a slave burial ground at Monticello, like you do at Mount Vernon. Once again, no markers, no headstones, no names, nothing to indicate who is here, their names, how they died, when they died, who they were related to. None of those things that we think of typically when we think of a cemetery. Just an empty plot with little bits of mounds of dirt to indicate where some of, the, uh, some of the bodies were interred. Down the road from Monticello is Montpelier, home of James Madison, father of the Constitution. This is his beautiful home. Uh, Madison was born here. It wasn't as grand as this when he was born. Uh, Madison's grandfather actually had staked out this property, which is in, uh, uh, has a beautiful view out to the mountains of, of uh, Virginia. And... Uh, there's an interesting story about James Madison's grandfather. He died under mysterious circumstances. Apparently he was poisoned. Three enslaved people were charged with murdering James Madison's grandfather. One of them was actually uh, convicted and then executed. Two others were acquitted, which is a rather extraordinary idea that in the 18th century, two enslaved people 
accused of murdering a master would be freed because there wasn't enough evidence. Maybe it's an indication of how valuable they were. He didn't just hang people and get rid of them because they had a great deal of value, monetary value. They were prized property. So think about James Madison growing up on a plantation, on a farm, where his father and mother had grown up and his grandmother had lived with people who may have tried to or gotten away with killing his grandfather. Again, the close intimacy of these lives. 24-7, we say today. And not lives that were always happy together, but lives that were filled with fear and dread and anxiety. I mentioned, by the way, uh, Mrs. Washington. You've, you've probably heard that George Washington freed some of his enslaved people in his will. Uh, to be accurate, he only freed one person, William Lee, who I talk about. Uh, the rest of Washington's personal enslaved people were not to be freed until after Mrs. Washington died. Well, she freed them before that. Why? Because she was afraid that they were going to hasten the process. Abigail Adams writes a letter in which she describes Mrs. Washington was very afraid that the servants who knew that they would be freed when she died were going to do something about it. So that's, again, this, this sense of fear and anxiety and the antagonism that must have existed with people who were also seen as family. And that's the strange part of this story that I'm trying to tell. This man also was born uh, at Montpelier. His name is Paul Jennings. We don't know much about his father, Edward Jennings, except his name and that he was an English merchant traveling through. But Paul Jennings' mother was enslaved, so Paul Jennings was enslaved. He was born at Montpelier around the turn of the uh, 19th century. And uh, when he was about 10 years old, he was taken to the White House. Imagine a 10-year-old enslaved boy waiting on James and Dolly Madison in the White House. That was Paul Jennings. But Paul Jennings was in the White House and actually sets the table for the Madisons on this August day in 1814 when the British come. Instead of Madison coming back to sit down at that dinner, the British soldiers come and sit down and enjoy the food and wine and ale that he set out. Then they proceed to burn down the White House and most of Washington, D.C., late in the War of 1812. James, uh, Paul Jennings was a witness to that, an eyewitness to this rather extraordinary piece of history. By the way, one of the British soldiers who was there took a cushion from one of the chairs and said that um, he would use it to remember Mrs. Madison's seat. A uh, little British humor, I guess. Uh, during the War of 1812, I added this uh, bit of local history. During the War of 1812, one of the men who fought the British at Bladensburg, not far from here, of course, um, was Charles Ball. And I tell his story in the book as well. Charles Ball uh, was an enslaved man uh, who joined the army, fought against the British, fought valiantly at Bladensburg, and then came to Baltimore to help defend Fort McHenry during the bombardment then. 
Um, after the War of 1812, he was returned to slavery. He wrote one of the first memoirs of, of an enslaved person, and he talked about his attempt to be free by joining the army, but that he was still returned to slavery after the war. One more piece, even though we know all these names about the heroes of the War of 1812, and everyone knows Francis Scott Key's name, we don't know Charles Balls' name, and, and that's... Um, that's a mistake, and I think we should correct that. Bring these people out of the shadows of liberty. This man also fought in the War of 1812, Andrew Jackson. He was the hero of New Orleans. Of course, a battle fought after the war was actually over. They just hadn't gotten the news yet. But that helped Andrew Jackson become the seventh president. And while he was the seventh president, slavery was alive and well in America and in Washington, D.C. The foreign slave trade had stopped in 1808, but all the way into the 1830s, Washington was a center of the slave, the internal slave trade, which at that time was America's biggest business by far. And slavery in its, itself was the world's biggest business. It was the beginning, you could say, of globalization. The slave trade built fortunes here. It built wealth here. That is why it was so important to so many Americans. It was not a sideshow to American history. It was a central act in our history. And that's one of the stories I'm also trying to tell in this book. After his presidency, uh, Jackson went back to his home outside of Nashville, the Hermitage. This is the back side of it, the back porch, so to speak. And just as you could see uh, those cabins on Mulberry Row down at Monticello, you can see this from Jackson's back porch. This is a cabin that belonged to a man named Alfred Jackson. I also tell his story in this book. By the standards of the day, it was pretty good because it was actually two cabins stitched together. That's where they joined two cabins together. And this double cabin, the home of Alfred Jackson, is right outside that back porch of the Hermitage. So it was difficult, if not impossible, for Andrew Jackson not to go out and look out at the people that he owned. And once again, they were every day a part of his life. They were with him 24-7. He took them to Washington to serve in the White House. I know a lot of you probably heard Mrs. Obama's speech Last summer, that's rousing, extraordinary moment where she said she wakes up in a house built by slaves. Well, yes, it was built by slaves, but it was also operated by slaves until 1851 when the last enslaved servants were brought to the White House by President Tyler. Taylor, I'm sorry. Zach, it was Zachary Taylor in 1851. Tyler, Taylor, Virginian slaveholders, you know. I'm just kidding. When Andrew Jackson came back to uh, the Hermitage after his presidency, there was some trouble at the Hermitage. Alfred Jackson and three other men had gone to a Christmas party. Yes, enslaved people went to Christmas parties. They had fun. They sang. They danced. They played instruments. They enjoyed themselves. They lived and found love and found families and made families. But they drank. And this night, at this party, there was a little bit too much drinking. There was an argument, and somebody ends up dead. 
Alfred Jackson and three other men from the Hermitage are accused of murder. Andrew Jackson, who is now old and somewhat sick, comes back to the Hermitage to find that four of his most valued men are being tried for murder. This is Jackson towards the end of his life. Jackson went into considerable debt to pay for those men's defense. He also went to the trial every single day. Do you think it might have had some impact on the jury to see the President of the United States, the most powerful, popular man in America, sitting in a courtroom while three of his enslaved men were being tried? All of them were acquitted. Was it a coincidence? We can't say. But Jackson went into debt to pay for those people, to pay for their defense. And he talked about them as if they were family. Once again, it's this extraordinary connection between the owner and the enslaved, between the master and his property. These people would talk, at least to interviewers who came along afterwards, talk with great admiration, respect, affection even for Andrew Jackson. And that's why this is such a complicated human story. Not long after this, Andrew Jackson lay on his deathbed. There's a famous lithograph of the scene. You can see his family gathered around him, his uh, uh, adopted sons, his daughter-in-law. But there were other people by his deathbed. Where is Alfred Jackson? Where are all of the other enslaved servants we know were present when the ailing president president died? We know it because we actually have a record of what Jackson said on his deathbed. And he called for those people to be brought to that room. He wanted to see them all, and he told them he would see them in heaven. We don't know if that actually happened or not, uh, but um, that is, again, this indication of this close connection between owner and enslaved. After his death, Jackson was buried outside the house in the garden beside his beloved wife, Rachel. This is at the Hermitage outside of Nashville, Tennessee. But unlike the other uh, uh, houses I mentioned, this is Alfred again in 1901. He lived at the Hermitage acting uh, after the Civil War. He was emancipated in the Civil War and acted as a sort of tour guide for the next 40 years. People would come to the Hermitage to hear stories about the great Andrew Jackson told by a man who was with him almost every day of his life. And note again, he lived until 1901. A man owned by the seventh president a veteran of the Revolutionary War, lived into the 20th century. That's how close we are to this story, my friends. Unlike those others, we know exactly where Alfred is buried. He's in the graveyard right beside Rachel and Andrew Jackson. His headstone says, Uncle Alfred. I'm told by the museum at the Hermitage they do not like to use that term of reference anymore, but there you can see it, Uncle Alfred buried beside the president in what you would think would be an area reserved for the family. It's very, very hard for us to understand this connection between these people. 
But there it is, and that's why this is a very complex and human story. I've tried to tell the story of slavery and what it meant to this country and what it continues to mean to this country in this book. It is a story that is certainly about people. It's a story about wealth, the enormous wealth that slavery created. It's a story about political power because, as you probably all know, if you don't, go back to your civics textbooks, the enslaved people of America represented political power in the 19th century. Why? When George Washington and those other men went to Philadelphia and wrote the Constitution, they made a very important compromise. Enslaved people were going to be counted in the census as three-fifths of a person. They wouldn't vote. They would have no other rights, but they would be counted. Now, what did that actually mean? Well, it meant specifically that Virginia which had a smaller free white population than Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, had more people when their enslaved population was counted. What did that mean? Four of our first five presidents are slaveholders from Virginia. Five of the first seven presidents are slaveholders. Ten of the first 12 presidents are uh, slaveholders, with the exception of the two Adamses. This was what slavery meant apart from its moral and horrific human consequences, it had enormous political and financial consequences. And that is the reason we came to that horrific catastrophe called the Civil War. These five lives are very briefly a representation of what some of those lives were. Of course, four million enslaved people at the beginning of the Civil War. These people are very different, and I've tried to give their names and their faces a voice so that we can hear them in history. Now, I started out by saying I wrote a book 25 years ago that was about questions, and um, I still have lots. And I hope that you have some questions, and I'd like to take any that you might have right now. Um, ma'am, first here. Very good question. Um, The documentation for these people is a lot easier than it is for many of the other millions of enslaved people because obviously they were in the households of these extraordinarily well-documented men. So we have Washington's references to William Lee. We don't have a lot of William Lee's own words. We have a lot of references to him. So my research involved, first of all, primary documents that Washington and others at Mount Vernon had written contemporary documents, as well as considerable amount of, of academic research that has been done over these, uh, uh, about these lives over the years. But in almost all of these cases, with the exception of William Lee, we actually have documentation of the words of these people. 
Oni Judge was interviewed late in her life by an abolitionist uh, uh, newspaper man. Um, Isaac, Granger, uh, Isaac Granger Jefferson told his story to uh, someone who recorded it in the middle of the uh, 19th century. Uh, Paul Jennings is even more interesting in some ways. Paul Jennings, who was that young boy serving in the White House, actually writes or records what is the first memoir of anyone who ever worked in the White House as a servant. It was published in 1865 after he had gained his freedom. And um, Alfred Jackson also um, was recorded many times by the many people who came to the Hermitage. So we have a lot of first-hand accounts of what these people said and did. That trial, for instance, in which Alfred Jackson is, is uh, uh, tried for murder is documented. So there's a great deal of primary source material that I was able to find uh, because the, the houses, and I was, I'm very grateful to Monticello, Mount Vernon, Montpelier, the Hermitage for the, the great help they gave me in putting this book together. Um, these stories all have also gotten into some of the literature, historical literature, um, but they're not as famous as they should be, and they're certainly not names that are in school books, and that's why this book is written to be read by younger readers, young adults, I say, but I think a lot of adults will be very interested in it as well. But the information and the documentation is all there. Um, yes, ma'am. There, well, first of all, this is a, a, an amazing room to be in to be talking about this because uh, there's so much wonderful scholarship. I was here for a few hours early and was sitting here and just looking around at the extraordinary scholarship that has been done, most of it in the past 30 years or so, um, trying to bring more of these voices to the forefront because certainly when I was in school um, in the dark ages, um, these, these stories weren't in my school books and they still aren't for the most part. I think school books have tried to be a little bit more sensitive to the stories but there's still the human side of this story is not being told and that's, that's what I've tried to focus on here because these voices are too important to be left out. These faces are too, too significant to be left in the shadows. So um, I'm standing on the shoulders of many, many researchers who have done wonderful work. Annette Gordon-Reed and her work on Sally Hemings is extraordinary. Uh, you can go down a, a long list of, of um, writers who have been working on this area. Uh, I know that there's a... a few years ago, more than a few years ago, a book called Bullwhip Days came out, and someone had gone and actually collected something forgotten, that during the Depression, the Federal White, uh, Writers uh, Administration, Works Project Administration, um, had collected stories by survivors of slavery. And so we still have those voices. So there's a, there's a rich, rich literature, and you can, I'm sure, find it all in this room um, without too much effort. But, but thank you for br uh, bringing that up. That's certainly one of the things I was trying to do with this book.
And this story has been whitewashed or hidden for so long that it really needs to be told because we are, and this is the real point of writing a book like this and talking about a book like this, we are living with this legacy. We are at a time of reckoning in this country, um, the likes of which I don't think I've seen certainly since, you know, uh, in my adult years. Um, we, we've had moments of reckoning before. Certainly the, um, the civil rights movement created that. The terrible riots of the mid-1960s that brought about the Kerner Commission, which is um, forgotten, but uh, I actually write about it quite a bit on my blog, which is at don'tknowmuch.com. You can go back and look at what the Kerner Commission said nearly 50 years ago about the deeply held grievances in the African-American community. What was number one on the list? Police practices. 50 years ago, that was the number one grievance. So, yeah. Well, so uh, that, that's the real point of writing this book, is to try and say we have to talk about this subject. It's too big in our history, and it's too big in its legacy to our history to ignore and think that, well, that was a long time ago and it only happened down south to a few people. So it's, um, it's the most important story in our history, or certainly one of them, and that's why I'm writing about it. Yes, ma'am. You're absolutely right. <laughs> it's, an, it's an excellent point, thank you, about the houses. Um, if you go today, it's a very different story, certainly, than it was 20 years ago and definitely 50 years ago. Uh, when it was servants and kind of n not mentioned. Mondicello has slave quarters now. You can go and get a wonderful app. I don't deal too much. I'm very kind of old-fashioned still. And this is my first PowerPoint in my whole life. So, <laughs> Thank you. I wasn't, but my, my point was I'm not technically savvy all the time, uh, but there's an app about Monticello and its uh, and the the lives of the enslaved, uh, Mount Vernon now has an exhibit going on at this moment called "Lives Bound Together," which really looks at this close again this close relationship between Washington and his enslaved people, and how he clearly was struggling with it later in his life. He writes in 1787 that he wishes that there was a plan for abolition, but he does almost nothing to help bring that about. And that, for that, we, we can rightly fault him. But yes, the houses are definitely addressing this. They have to. Um, I've always been struck in many, many visits to these historic houses by how few, apart from school buses, how few African-American families go to these places. And I, I've asked them, and they said that they're... Uh, I think they were off the record when they said they said that about six percent of the visitors to a place like Monticello are, are African American, um, and I've asked people about that, and they say 
it doesn't feel like our place. So I think that the, that the houses are not only trying to be historically more faithful, but also trying to say, yes, this is your story too, and it's not a happy story, but you should come and, and see it and understand it. Oh, one here. Yes. Yeah, you. Uh, two points. First of all, as, as far as naming goes, um, these are the, na- the names I use are the names that these people use themselves, um, whether they felt honestly that they, the, they wish they had different names. We don't know. Ona uh, Judge, is that, that is her father's name. Uh, but in the other cases, William Lee, we don't know his fa- his, uh, we don't know who his father was. Was it his owner whose name was Lee? Um, Isaac Granger is born into the Granger family, a very significant family, second to the Hemings only in importance at, at Monticello's, the Granger family. But he later chose to use the name Jefferson because it conveyed a certain prestige to him uh, later in his life. Um, Alfred Jackson was certainly not the son of Andrew Jackson, but born on Jackson's property, he was named Jackson. Um, Paul Jennings, again, his fa- takes his father's name. Uh, it was never a question of, of his. So naming is a, is a significant uh, issue. And to your first point about the economy, I don't know if it was 50%. It, it could well have been. I've never seen that precise a statistic. Um, but there's no question that it was the largest and most important engine of wealth in this country until the in- much later in the Industrial Revolution. And... Um, and that's one of the reasons that it was so important and it was so people were so unwilling to give it up. Now, it's true that it was so-called free labor, but it wasn't really free. And most economists will discuss this. And one of the things that's interesting is that in 1776, the great year of American independence, it's also the year that Adam Smith writes the book Wealth of Nations, which is the kind of the Bible of capitalism, modern capitalism. And he writes about how inefficient slavery is because it's not a good use of capital. And that's something that penetrated the New England states, that idea, much more so than it did into the southern states where this the plantation aristocracy was so much more established. That's why the New England states were so much more willing to go to a, a factory mercantile-based economy in which slavery was not an efficient use of capital. Um, The best book on this subject, I would say, if you're interested, is a fairly recent book by um, Edward Baptist uh, called The Half Has Never Been Told, and he really explores the whole economic structure, especially of the internal slave trade. Once the foreign slave trade ended. What did that do? It forced up the value of the enslaved people here because all of a sudden now it was a, a breeding production line for to produce more slaves who could be in, uh, then sold elsewhere in the country. And that was the, really the source of enormous, enormous wealth, slave breeding, particularly in Virginia. Um, I want to take one second to briefly say, because I stumble on it myself and I catch myself all the time, you've probably noticed I try and use the words enslaved people as opposed to slaves. 
and I explained that distinction in the opening of this book. To say someone was enslaved means that they were acted upon. This is a way that we use words to identify who someone is. To say someone is, as, is a slave is an identifier, and it's a, and it's a one that, that carries some weight to it. It's very different to say William Lee was enslaved by George Washington rather than saying William Lee was Washington's slave. Um, so I'm an old dog trying to learn new tricks in some ways, so I catch myself every once in a while going back and saying slave, but I really do try, and certainly in this book, use the phrase enslaved people or enslaved person or someone was enslaved by, meaning they were acted upon uh, as opposed to this was how, what their identity was. Um, it's an important distinction, I think, that um, more writers are turning to. S- one more here and then one more after that, maybe. That's the book, I, I mean, if it's the book you're talking about, this book I just mentioned certainly tells that story. It's called The Half Has Never Been Told, and it, specifically, it even begins with a scene very much like the one you're describing of a, 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 a coffle of property, merchandise, marching down the dusty road from Virginia uh, further south to be sold. And it was an enormous business and created great, great wealth in the beginning of the 19th century in places like Maryland and Virginia. I, I, I agree with you completely. It's a, it's a, it's a fa- very fair term. I, I, I uh, use master, I use owner. Uh, slaver is, is completely appropriate. But in fact, I tell the story in, in one of the, there are two chapters about Washington as a slaver. Um, about because he, again he gets this kind of pass. Oh, late in his life he was not going to sell anymore, and he wasn't going to break up families, and as as if that's a kind of free pass for him. But earlier in his life he had actually raffled off children. He had taken somebody owed him money, and so he took his his property and raffled them off. So there's a description of some of the children that are sold in lots and at a raffle. Um, later, there's a, a stunning description of him being kind of annoyed because there was a fellow named Tom who had escaped too many times. And so uh, Washington gives him to a sea captain who's heading down to the West Indies and says, you know, here he is. Uh, he, he's a hard worker, but he just runs away too much. He's handy with the hoe. And he gives him a grocery list what he wants back. Rum, molasses, sweetmeats. It's extraordinary to see the life, a life of a human being exchanged for a shopping list. Um, and that is the human side of the story that I, that I try and tell, and I, I, I hope I've succeeded. One more question here. I did not go into the Masonic records. I've written about Masonry and the, and the presidents. There's a whole conspiracy theory about that that I've addressed in the past, but it, I didn't relate to it uh, particularly in this book. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't do research into anyone who was descended from Prince Hall. Uh, the Prince Hall lodges were uh, African-American Masonic lodges, ironically established by British officers who were Masons as well. Uh, first in New England. Um, uh, again, it's not an area I go into in, in, in this book in, in particular, but um, one that is 
rich in many ironies. Uh, the fact uh, I've written about masonry in other contexts, uh, uh, John Hancock and uh, and Joseph Warren, kind of the members of the elite in Boston, were Masons. But so was Paul Revere, who was more representative of the the street, the merchants, the tradesmen. Uh, and so Paul Revere acts as this kind of go-between between the wealthy Boston Brahmin triots who are Masons and Revere. Uh, is the representative of the mechanics, as they were were known. So it's a re- it's a very interesting um, piece of our history. And of course, as you know, Washington wore a Masonic apron when he uh, laid the cornerstone of the Congress. I think I'm getting a signal here that time is nearly up. Is there uh, uh, is there another question? Yeah. I'm always working on a book. That's how I make a living. So. <laughs> Uh, th- there's no uh, no sabbatical, and uh, I don't teach or anything else. I-, I just work as a writer. I'm very lucky. I get to sit in libraries like this or do my research and then write about it, and then I get to come and talk to nice people like you about it. Um, I'm currently working on a book that's very, very different from this book, but um, still falls into what I call the category of hidden history, and it is uh, a s- the story of what happened uh, 100 years ago in 1980. 19- 18, uh, when America was th- th- in the thick of World War I, and of course World War I ends on November 11th, 1918, which is why we celebrate Veterans Day on November 11th. Um, but it was also hundredth, it's also the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu was the most, now considered the most deadly epidemic, more deadly than the bubonic plague the Spanish flu killed 2% of the American population, maybe 5% of the world population, uh, perhaps 100 million people worldwide. And so the book is really about the confluence of the Spanish flu and World War I because the Spanish flu probably wouldn't have existed in the way it did without the war. The war was responsible in part for spreading the flu. And um, then the flu had an incredible impact on the war. Um, there was a moment, for instance, during June of 1918 when uh, German armies, uh, the German generals, wanted to mount a large counteroffensive, and half a million German soldiers were sick with the flu and couldn't fight. So it's, um, you know, we usually think about World War I and we think about tanks and mustard gas and trenches, but the weapons we can't see were probably far more uh, significant in, in 1918 than all of the bullets and, and tanks and bombs and airplanes. So that's what I'm working right now. Thank you very much for coming. And I would just, I would just add one final word. It's my, my plug for my sponsor here, I guess. Um, I'm a child of the library. I grew up in a city that had no bookstores. Um, we had books in school, but we had a wonderful, wonderful public library, and I was there once or twice a week, and we had the bookmobile that came around. The public library is an institution very close to my heart, and it's close to the heart of democracy in this uh, in this country. It's not just about books, of course. It's about ideas and information and sharing it and making those ideas and information available to everyone. So I thank you for coming out to the library and hope you will support the library in any way that you can. Thank you very much. Good night.
podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.